You're listening to an audio message from Palm Vista Community Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit palmvista.org. Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church and our Advent series entitled Glory. We were made for God's glory. That's why we celebrate glory. We were made for God's greatness. That's why we celebrate greatness, and rightly so. But, but in that celebration of glory, whether it's a Heisman Trophy winner last night from your university, or whether it's Army beating Navy yet again, <laughs> we, we, we celebrate accomplishment. We celebrate greatness. We celebrate glory. There's something in us that wants that. It's at at once noble and tragic because the glory that we're made for, the greatness that we are made for is God's glory and God's greatness. But because of what happened at the fall, that's been corrupted. So instead, we settle for a far lower glory and seek a glory of ourselves or a greatness for ourselves. And we celebrate and we make these lesser glories that are but a dim reflection of the great glory of God, our gods. And we always come away disappointed and we hurt each other and we break our lives and we live in quiet desperation and despair and at times disgrace and shame because we've run after the wrong glory. We've made the wrong glory the glory. Instead of letting it be a lesser glory that we can enjoy, it's become our glory. We glory in ourselves, glory in our own greatness. An author once said, we're all legends in our own minds, or at least we want to be. God, in his mercy, And in his kindness comes to us in our glory-starved, broken despair and discouragement and disgrace. And he gives us a word of comfort. And that word of comfort comes to us in the promise of glory. Glory promise. That's the title of our message this morning. We find it in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. And here we're going to receive from God the promise of glory. A glory that is found in God's greatness, in God's eminence, in God's renown, in God's fame, in God's ultimate power and greatness. Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. And please turn there in your Bibles was written originally by the prophet Isaiah many, many, many years ago. It was a prophecy. So though it was written around the 700s BC, it actually looked at what was going to happen in the 500s BC and even beyond what's going to happen in our time, Jesus' time, our time, and even beyond that, it actually prophesies about the final day when Jesus returns. The original audience receiving this prophecy were a people that had put their hopes in the wrong glory. God's people, to be sure, Israel. But they had put their hopes in their own glory. They had resisted God's glory, namely his glorious presence as their king. And as a result of their sin... 
they watched the glory of God depart from their city. Their city was conquered by the Babylonians. The walls were destroyed. And the very place where God's glory dwelt in their midst, the temple was totally destroyed. And they themselves... The recipients of these words in Psalm in Isaiah 40, 1 through 5, were shuffling out of the promised land, being evicted by God, going as exiles into Babylonian captivity. And it's to that people that God gives this word. But ah, don't you know that we too, at times, find God's glory departed? Now, let me just say if you're not a Christian, obviously you've never known God's glory. You've sought glory everywhere else. I pray that this morning God opened your eyes to the true glory, the glory that never fades, the glory that is the bright shining sun that all the other glories dimly reflect. But if you are a Christian, there are days where we find ourselves with feeling like the glory has departed and we're shuffling off in captivity to sin and self as exiles in Babylonian captivity. And in the midst of that, friend, God speaks his word of comfort in this text. In the midst of our despair, even our disgrace, you know, where you've put your hopes in the glory of someone liking you or thinking well of you, and suddenly you find that it's been a false God, though it's not wrong to be liked and respected. That's a good thing. You've elevated it to the thing, and you've bowed your knee to that God and put your trust in that God, like Israel did at this point, trusting in the Egyptians and other countries instead of God to deliver them. And you find yourself in a glory-starved condition, broken, broken. Where is God? Like Israel at that time, as they were shuffling out of the promised land, they were wondering, what happened? Has God been faithful to his word? Has God abandoned me? And in the midst of that, God speaks these words of comfort. Here's what I want you to be thinking about during this sermon. Don't let the glories of this season overshadow the glory of God. For the glories of this season, however much you can enjoy them, and please do enjoy them, are but a dim reflection of his glory. And you were made for his glory. And if you are caught up Seeking the wrong glory. Let this word bring you back to the true glory of God. So let's read of God's glory. Let's read of God's comfort in Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that your warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, for all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord 
has spoken. Here God comforts his people. Here God comforts his people with the promise of his glory that will arrive with the glorious king, Christ Jesus the Lord. In fact, that's the main point of this text. God comforts us on the screen. God comforts us with his promised arrival as our glorious king. Point one, God comforts us. Israel is in shambles. The temple has been destroyed. They are now in exile in Babylon. The throne of David that they thought would be forever and ever and ever. God's promise, after all, was the land, was this throne of David, was a people under his rule and his land. That throne's gone. The king is in exile. Everything has been destroyed. And God comes and he comforts his people. Look how he does it. Look at verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that your warfare is ended, that your iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What a, what a contrast. Imagine Israel in chains, stumbling through the dust of the Middle East, and imagine the harsh words of their Babylonian captors. Can you imagine? Yelling at them, pushing them down, not respecting the aged, not respecting anybody else, beating them. And to these people comes another voice, the the tender comfort of God. I would just say to you, in your life right now, if you are being oppressed by harsh voices in your life, those harsh voices may just be the circumstances of life. They could be a boss. They could be a family member. They could be a neighbor. They could be a a sickness, but it's a harsh voice. I pray this morning that you would hear the tender voice of God comforting you. And what is that tender voice saying to you? He's telling you three things. He's saying that your warfare is ended. He's saying that your iniquity is pardoned and your debt has been paid. Do you see that in verse two? This is amazing. The glory of God comes to us in Christ, the glorious king, and he comes to comfort us and he comforts us with these three promises. Now for Israel, they're wondering, wait, my warfare is ended. I'm sitting by the rivers of Babylon and I've lost everything. My home, I don't even understand what the people are saying around me. I'm in a foreign country. How can my warfare be ended? Oh, yeah, it's ended, all right. It's ended with me, a captive. No, no. God is saying your warfare is ended because I will conquer your enemies. I will return as your glorious king. And your iniquity is pardoned. The reason you're in exile is because you rebelled against me. You offered sacrifices to foreign gods. You trusted other nations rather than me. And your debt has been paid for. Where this sings to us today is that that's what Christ does for us. Whatever harsh voices you're hearing, I want you to hear the Lord say to you, your warfare is ended. Jesus Christ on the cross defeated sin and death. And whether you know it or not, that is the biggest warfare anybody will ever have. 
Your war against God, which is the most dangerous, lethal war ever, you are God's enemies apart from Christ, has ended because Jesus is going to now make you a friend of God. Jesus on the cross put all the principalities and powers, all the evil forces, that he made a show of them openly. He mocked them. He defeated them on the cross. Your warfare has ended in Christ. Your iniquity is pardoned. Jesus on the cross took your sin, your iniquity. Hear his tender voice speak that to you this morning. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you've done. I don't know if you have shame and guilt on you, but your iniquity is pardoned, friend. It's pardoned in Christ. Jesus took it on the cross. He paid your debt on the cross, a debt you could never pay, has now been paid in full. Your warfare has ended. Your iniquity has been pardoned, and your debt has been paid. Do you hear that, friends? Do you hear that? This is the comfort that God promised Israel in Isaiah 41 to 50. It is the glory of God, the glory we're made for, that appears in the coming of God as our glorious king. It's the glory that Simeon spoke of and referred to when he went to the temple to prophesy over the baby Jesus. Look at Luke 2.25. On the screen. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That phrase, the consolation of Israel, ties this text with Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Simeon, a devout Jew, believed the promise of Isaiah 41 to 5, though it was given 700 years earlier, though it was given to a people in exile in the 500s BC. Simeon now, at the time of Christ, is believing that word. And the reason he believed that word, because look at the last line here, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. If you are suffering right now, the oppression, and the harsh words of your enemies, the only way you're going to believe the promise of God is if the Holy Spirit is upon you. Do you see that? That's my prayer for you. Whatever you're going through, the Holy Spirit is here. We speak not man's wisdom with man's words, but God's words. We speak not in the power of man or great oratory, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is on right now. He's here. And I pray that he empower these words to you. No matter what you're going through, this promise would be alive. Can you imagine a man believing a promise given 700 years earlier? It's possible when the Spirit is on you. May he be on you, church. May you trust him. Look what Simeon says further in Luke 2, 29 to 32. He walks up to Joseph and Mary. They're walking into the church with the baby Jesus. There's a baby around here somewhere, right over there. All right, 40 days old? Huh? Ah, close. Three and a half months. So they walk into, a, into the temple with this baby, 40 days old. It's the period of cleansing. It's the time to dedicate baby Jesus. The Holy Spirit's on Simeon. He says, Simeon, this is what I was talking about in Isaiah 41 to 5. Go to the temple. I'm going to show you. In comes a very poor couple. She's maybe, maybe 15 years old. Maybe. Maybe 13. He's poor. 
They're giving the poorest of all offerings. I mean, there's one section of the temple that's like, you know, the concert seats, like right in the first row where the VIPs meet the, you know, the artists. And then there's the nosebleed seats up in the very top where you barely even, is that a stage down there? That's where they were. God sends them there. And he walks up and he grabs Jesus and he says this, Luke 2, 29 to 32. Lord, now let, you are letting your servant depart in peace. This is an old man. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And he's referring back to Isaiah 40, verse 5. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The glory they were made for, the glory that they forfeited in their rebellion, the glory that they've been hoping for, the glory that we're made for, it's here in Christ. God comforts his people. He ends their warfare. He pardons their iniquities. He pays their sins. Friends, this is the gospel comfort. God speaks into our despairing, broken, disgraced, discouraged hearts this morning. He speaks the comfort of his promised glory and his tender care in the arrival of our glorious King Jesus. Point two. God arrives as our glorious King. Wait a second now. That's quite a leap you're asking me to make. Simeon's kind of vague allusions to some of the vocabulary that Isaiah used in Isaiah 40. How can you say that? How can you say that? Well, I can say that because that's what John the Baptist said. See, John the Baptist now, 30 years later, Jesus is a baby, 40 days old. Now, Jesus is an adult, 30 years later, roughly. And God sends John the Baptist. And now John the Baptist, he isn't just going to intimate it. This isn't some like redacted report that you're trying to figure out what's it really saying in there. This is now the report. This is now the words of Isaiah. Read them with me silently. Luke 3, 4 and 5 on the screen. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah. This is not John the Baptist preaching. This is John speaking. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. John the Baptist is saying, this, this man, Jesus is the one that Isaiah was talking about. This is the one that's going to restore the glory of God to his people. This is God come as our royal king, our our, our reigning king. This is the one. This is the one. This matches Isaiah verses 3 and 4. Now, what does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord? Like, does God really need you or me to prepare his way? I don't think so. If God wants to show up here, God shows up here without you preparing the way for him. Uh, If there's a mountain, God removes it. If there's a valley, God fills it. So what's this talking about? It's not talking about God. It's talking about us. See, Isaiah is saying to Israel, prepare your hearts for the appearing of God's glory in the person of God, the royal king, the righteous king. That's what John the Baptist is saying to these people. We read that at the beginning of the service when he says to the Pharisees and the scribes, who told you to come out here, you vipers? This is why people were getting baptized, because they were repenting. And this is what God calls to us. He comforts us by coming to us as the promised king 
And he says, he says, prepare your hearts, prepare your hearts, prepare your hearts. That's the command. Be spiritually ready for the coming of the king. Prepare your heart spiritually. What? How we do it. Make paths that are straight and keep that scripture up there. Make paths that are straight. Let every valley be filled up. Let every mountain be made low. Make the, may the crooked become straight. May the rough become level. This is done by the spirit of God, Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, what God's going to do to you, I pray he does this. I pray he does it right now. He is going to help you understand just how crooked your heart is, how proud it is. That's the mountains. And he's going to bring them down. He's going he's to show you how selfish you are. And God is going to enable you to prepare your heart. It's called repentance. But if you're a Christian, which I assume most of us aren't here, this is the daily walk of a Christian. Do you understand this? This is what we do every day. How do we do that, Al? When I get up in the morning and I read God's word, I read it this morning, 2 Corinthians 3, and it speaks to my heart. And and, and that that heart that is regenerate kind of gets a little crooked in some areas. Whoop. It's interesting. He... He spoke to my heart something, and then my wife said something to me. Ah, how many of you know your spouse can sometimes also be used by God to speak to your crooked heart? <laughs> Whoops. It's easier to get it from the word, right? <laughs> and she said something to me that it was an opportunity for me to serve the very person I was thinking I didn't want to serve, but God was sharing with me, you need to serve that person. It was amazing. I, I read the Bible, and then I went upstairs to get ready to go to, to come to church, and she says, hey, I just got this, and, and this person needs to be served. And my immediate response to her goes, oh, no. I mean, it just came out of my mouth before I could say it. And then I went, okay, there's a crooked path there. And I said, you know what? This is actually God. Because this, I was praying for this. How can I be forgiving to someone I think has wronged me? This is a perfect way. And I, I, I sat on the bed, I was putting my socks on, very spiritual moment. And I thought, this is God. God just like spoke to me. Wow. Now, tomorrow my heart's going to be crooked again in that area, I'm sure, okay? But it's just an everyday walk. It's what I do when I get with guys in the church. And we do accountability. And I share with them, hey, I'm having trouble forgiving some people. Let me share it with you. And they say, hey, bro, so am I. All right, let's hold each other accountable. What does the Bible say? Those crooked ways are made straight. The mountains of pride are brought down. The valleys of selfishness and unbelief are brought up. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord comes in there. By his power, by his spirit. But he calls us to do this because he's faithful. Look at verse 5, the last verse here in this text. Look at verse 5 of Isaiah 40. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Imagine you're an Israelite in chains in Babylon, and you've lost everything. And you hear this. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Simeon believed it. John the Baptist believed it. Will you believe it? I love what Abernathy, who is a commentator, a scholar that I've been reading concerning Isaiah, says about this language in Isaiah 50 on the screen. The language of Isaiah 40, verse 5, then would have resonated with exiles. 
with those who had a history full of stories concerning God's glorious, manifest, royal presence. That's God's glory, his manifest, royal presence. But who saw no evidence of it at the time. They were in exile in Babylon. Isaiah 40, verse 5, lifts the eyes, indeed the hearts of his people, by declaring that God's glory will be revealed. Because the mouth of the Lord spoke it. The glorious God will return to his forsaken city as king. We know that happened 70 years later. The temple was rebuilt. But all of that was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes. Does this language of God's glory returning to your desolate city, your desolate circumstances, God's tender care and words in your heart and mind that drowns out the harsh words of whatever is out there speaking harshly to you, does that give you hope? Do you resonate with that? See, this is what John the Baptist spoke. His final words in that section we just looked at. Luke 3, 6. John the Baptist said this, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Do you see the salvation of God this morning in your circumstances? Whatever it is you're thinking of right now. Unbeliever, may you see it because God opens it up to you right now. God's glory is manifest as he returns to his people and his city as the glorious king who reigns forever and ever. The mouth of the Lord confirms this and we bear witness to God's work with our mouths this Advent season. Here's the appeal. Here's the appeal. God calls us to see and shout the glories, his glories, God's glories, and the coming of Christ our king. First, we have to see it. First, we have to see it and repent and believe. But having repented and believed and daily living in this good, we would then proclaim it to all the nations, the salvation of God that Scripture says all the nations will see. God promised glory at his coming. God delivered on his promise in Christ our King. By the Spirit, we now proclaim that glory, the glory that you were made for. No matter how desolate your life is right now, no matter if you're sitting by the rivers of Babylon, metaphorically speaking, you have a glory, Christian, that is totally satisfying. You're still going to cry. You're still going to miss the land. But you've got a glory that sustains you. All other glories will fade. Trust me. This glory will never fade. It will never fade. We trust in Christ in the face of the temptation to trust in false gods, as Israel did, thinking somehow the Babylonian gods conquered their God. He did not. God was just using him. We believe that God is with us. His glory comforts us and restores us in Christ, our glorious king. Hope has come in Christ Jesus our glorious king who fulfills God's promised glory in Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. May we proclaim that glory for all to hear and see. Let's pray. Worship team, would you join me up front? Father, thank you for the glory that you give us in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would just give us your grace in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. I pray that you would give us your glory In Christ, 
Lord, it's a glory that, that we don't deserve. It's a glory we forfeited. We, we chose the glory of man rather than the glory of God. We chose the greatness of man rather than the greatness of God. Lord, if we're honest, let's just personalize it. I chose my glory over yours. Rather than reflecting your glory, I stole your glory, tried to. Rather than worshiping God, I prefer to be God, thank you. And I, we've lost it all. We're shuffling off in captivity to sin and self and shame and Satan. But then you rescue us. You give us glory. This is what satisfies me. I can't earn enough. I can't get enough respect. I can't be loved enough. I I can't have enough of whatever it is that I want, pleasure, whatever, to satisfy. Only you satisfy, God. And you gave us this glory freely in Christ, our King. So that's why we come and adore you. Lord, that's why we sing, oh, come, let us adore the risen king. Lord, we do it with with failing lives and failing lips. And those of us who can't sing a lick do it off key and off tone. But, oh, God, you hear it, and it's so sweet in your ears. We glorify the risen king Jesus with our lives. We glorify the risen King Jesus with our lips. Lord, Lord, we are satisfied with your glory. Let us see it even more and more. As I read this morning, when we see you face to face, we'll see your glory. It's the glory that transforms us. It's the glory that lights all the lesser glories. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the King. Let us sing that song. Together, let us stand, church, and worship our King. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more resources or see how you can donate to this ministry, simply visit palmvista.org. And be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming teachings. 